0: truly really delighted to be here this evening for any number of reasons, partly because this project began here. And Kirby uh, may not even remember this, but even if he did, he'd be too modest to say it. This project really began uh, with a conversation that I had with Kirby um, when I kind of stumbled upon the Clark family history up in the, uh, in the archives upstairs. And I said, hmm, wow, an amazing story. And he said, well, you know, you ought to talk to Joyce Clark Turvey, who was John Clark's daughter. Uh, He gave me Joyce's number. I cold called her, as I was telling a couple folks in the audience earlier today. Um, That first conversation, I think, was a little odd for me, but especially odd for Joyce, to have somebody calling her and saying, I want to write a book about your family. And yet, uh, Joyce made that happen, and I'm incredibly grateful. Um, But I really want to begin by thanking Kirby, who who, uh, gave this product a really big and early boost. Uh, and It's also fun to be here. This is where it all began uh, for me in some places with this project. And it's kind of fitting that the, the book was published a year and a half ago that uh, this is my first time back to Montana. I've given some talks in Missoula and in Bozeman on this trip, but it really does seem fitting that I'm ending here because this was the place that was certainly most important to me. Um, So again, I'm deeply grateful to Kirby Lambert for inviting me and, of course, all my pals at the Montana Historical Society. And there are too many of them to name, but Brian Chauvers, the former librarian, Molly Holtz, Molly Krukenberg, Rich Arstad, Martha Cole, I could go on for a long time, and I won't, but I thank all of you, wherever you may be. Um, And I also want to thank Ken Robison, who is out here. Ken? Can you raise your hand? Um, Who I imagine a lot of you know, but has uh, done an extraordinary job preserving the history of uh, Fort Benton in particular, and Ken was a real help to me as I worked on this book. I also want to acknowledge three Clark family members who are in the audience tonight. Sitting right here in the front row, you do not have to raise your hands if you don't want to, although I did just call you out in the front row. Um, (laughs) Dana Turvey. Her sister, Sharon Ewing, Sharon's daughter, Chantelle DeLay. Um, Sharon and, uh, and Dana are Joyce's daughters, John Clark's granddaughters. And Chantelle would have been John's great granddaughter, I take it, uh, and have been very generous to me. And it's been really fun getting to know them today, although Dana and I have corresponded over the years. And thank you all for coming out this evening. So let me jump into things. On August 17, 1869, Malcolm Clark was murdered on his ranch north of Helena, Montana, in front of his family. His killer was an Indian named Natuchio, whom whites in the territory called Pete Owlchild, and he was the cousin of Clark's pagan Blackfeet wife, Koth Now, Al child and four of his friends had shown up at the ranch that evening, which wasn't unusual because, of course, they were kin, Um, but the timing was a little bit strange. It was 9 p.m., and that was pretty late uh, for visitors to come calling. However, because they were family, they were naturally invited inside, and uh, they sat down for a late meal around the dinner table. Now, Sometime afterwards, Helen Clark, Malcolm's oldest child, remember that this was sort of an ominous evening, maybe even a bit portentous, or it certainly looked that way in retrospect. But the dinner proceeded. And afterwards, Al Child invited Malcolm Clark outside for a smoke. And when they stepped onto the porch, another Indian bolted from the brush and shot Malcolm Clark in the chest. And as he fell backwards, Al Child stepped forward and cleaved Clark's forehead with an axe. This is a photo of the smokehouse. I bet a lot of you, this is one of the privileges of giving and pleasures of giving this talk in Montana. If I'm in Oklahoma or in Texas, nobody knows any of these places or names or people. I bet a bunch of you have stayed right here. This is the smokehouse on the Seabin Ranch, which of course was formerly the Clark property. I think it's now owned by the Baucus family. Is that right? So this still stands, I think, somebody in, in the room here could probably tell me if I'm wrong. I think the ranch house, as far as I can tell, was off to the left. But at any rate, this is the general location where this action took place. Now, just as Clark was being murdered, uh, his 21-year-old son, Horace, had been lured away from the ranch on a ruse to search for some supposedly missing cattle. He'd gone off with another one of the Indians who had come with Alchild to uh, to the ranch. Um, and as they were about a mile or a mile and a half away from the house, Horace heard his companion begin to sing um, uh, an Indian death song. Odd, certainly, because certainly didn't seem to call for it on this particular occasion, but stranger still, because they were all Blackfeet, and uh, the Indian was singing a crow death song, which Horace thought was very strange, so he turned to face uh, his companion, who then shot him in the face at point-blank range. And the bullet entered under Horace's nose. It passed beneath his skin but above his cheekbone, and then it exited below his ear. And he um, fell out of the saddle, had his leg ensnared in the lariat. He was dragged 100 yards or so and was left bleeding profusely and assumed to be dead. Uh, and because of the kinship ties between um, victim and assailant, uh, they did not go and inspect the body to scalp it. And so Horace was able to make a miraculous recovery. I'll come back to him in a little bit. So what are the reasons for this? Well, there are a couple of different stories that uh, really can't be reconciled that have been told over the years. Uh, Whites in Montana then and since have tended to insist that this was sort of a festering dispute over some stolen horses uh, that had happened when Al Child had visited Malcolm Clark's ranch in 1867. This is certainly the story that Helen Clark tells in her reminiscence of her father. Others, particularly on the, uh, on the Blackfeet Reservation, say that, in fact, that 1867, during that 1867 visit, Malcolm Clark had sexually assaulted Al Child's wife. And to go a step further, some say also that uh, about nine months later, um, a, uh, a pale-skinned, blue-eyed baby boy was born, either stillborn or smothered in a banjo hole by the woman's horrified relatives. Again, it's not possible to square these two stories. Um, this is an enormously significant event. Malcolm Clark was famous in Montana as an early white pioneer. Uh, in fact, he was one of the 12 founders of the Montana Historical Society on February 2nd, 1865, which I think you just celebrated your 150th anniversary. Um, Clark and men like Granville Stewart founded the Historical Society, founded by men like them to commemorate men like them um, uh, miners, ranchers, prospectors and others, fur traders, who had come west uh, and settled this territory. And so it was that whites were terrified by his murder. He was a longtime resident. Uh, he was married to an Indian woman. He had four children of mixed ancestry. He was thought to be a great friend to area native people. So they thought that if Clark could be killed on his own front porch by somebody who was belated by marriage, that no whites in Montana were safe. So what I want to do is to, in the time that I've got left, is to explain the context for the murder of Malcolm Clark, the implications for the Blackfeet, and then most importantly, the legacy for the Clark family, which is the real subject of my book. So to begin, we need to go back to around 1840, when Malcolm Clark arrived on the upper Missouri. So he came to Montana as a truly last resort. By that time, he was in his early 20s, and he was out of options. He had been expelled not once, but twice from the US Military Academy at West Point. The first time in 1835, when he challenged a classmate to a duel, that was forbidden. The second time, uh, oh, I should say that after that first expulsion, he was reinstated by none other than President Andrew Jackson, who was a close personal friend of the family. Clark's father, Nathan Clark, was a captain in the U.S. Army and was stationed in Nashville as a recruiting officer just before Old Hickory went to Washington to assume the presidency in um, early 1829. Uh, So uh, Jackson stepped in and reinstated Malcolm Clark. But the second time, about a year later, uh, Jackson chose not to intervene. This time, Malcolm Clark beat one of his classmates with a cowhide whip and threatened him with a dagger. So that time... uh, proved to be the last time that he was expelled from West Point, and so he left uh, New York and he headed down to Texas, which of course at that time was um, just uh, sort of in the aftermath of the Texas Revolution. Now unfortunately, Malcolm Clark arrives in 1836 or 1837. It's hard to pinpoint his movements exactly, but the point is he gets there after all of the fortune and glory of the Revolution, and instead he just finds the place in disarray. He applies a couple of times for entry into the army, but is told in no uncertain terms that he had squandered not one, but two opportunities. So like many rootless young men of the day, he made his way to the upper Missouri, where the fur trade was entering its heyday, especially it was transitioning from the trade in beaver products to Buffalo. So he was stationed uh, initially at Fort McKenzie, which you can see right here, which was the most important satellite post of Fort Union here. I assume that some of you must have been to the reconstructed Fort Union site. Are there any folks in here? Raise your hands. Okay, this is good. There were not so many folks in Bozeman last night, and I chastised them for not having gone. <laughs> it's amazing. It's absolutely extraordinary. You really need to get out there. It is, admittedly, a long drive, but it's closer where you are when you're here than it is if you're in Texas or Oklahoma, so you should get <laughs> out there. It's a really it's an, amazing, it's an amazing spot. Um, but the beauty of Fort Union is it's located at the confluence of the Yellowstone and the Missouri. And so uh, building a fort there gives you control of the entire watershed in the front range of the Rocky Mountains, from Yellowstone all the way up to the continent or to uh, to the um to the 49th parallel. Now Fort Mackenzie did business with the Pegans or the 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 Pagans. I've heard it pronounced any number of ways. It's easiest for me if I just call them Pegans as I first heard it. Um, One of the three member groups of the Blackfoot Confederacy. I suspect that people here know all about the Blackfoot who are comprised of three member groups who are united by language, custom, culture, uh, common enemies as well. Um, The Pegans are divided by the 49th parallel right here. Uh, Southern Pegans, also known as the American Blackfeet, south of the 49th parallel. The Northern Pegans here um, in southern Alberta, and the Blackfoot proper, the Siksika, uh, or the Bloods, or the Kina, the three-member groups. But when we talk about the Blackfeet in the United States, we're talking exclusively about the, uh, the southern Pegans, or southern Pegans. So it had taken Americans three decades to make inroads among them, because they were reflexively hostile to outsiders. Uh, whether it be other Indians and Métis, peoples of mixed Native white ancestry, who competed with the Blackfeet for control of access to the bison. But they were especially hostile to Americans, whom the pagans called long knives. They had more peaceful relations with Canadians whom they called Northern white men. I think you see <laughs> quite, a, quite a contrast there. Um, there are reasons for this hostility, again, that I'm sure you know well. One of them, of course, is the two medicine fight. Um, in 1806, uh, July 1806, when um, uh, Meriwether Lewis and a small detachment from the Corps of Discovery exploring the headwaters of the Marias River run into eight Pegan boys. Um, uh, there's an attempted horse theft, attempted uh, theft of some rifles, and this ends in the death of two young pigans. And this is the only fatal encounter between Indians and whites in the entire two and a half year voyage of the Corps of Discovery. So that's one reason. But the more important reason by far are the trading habits of the American fur company. Because unlike the British or the Canadians north of the line in Canada who would build their, um, their posts, the mouths of rivers, like the Hudson Bay Company, and allow Indians to bring their products downriver to trade there the Americans would go right into the heart of Blackfoot country, particularly in the Three Forks area here, and set their traps without getting any consent from the Blackfeet. And this drove them to distraction. But shrewd and persistent efforts by the American Fur Company had opened up trade with the Pegans by the time that Malcolm Clark arrived around 1840. And it did a booming business with um, in Beaver and then Buffalo Products. Clark was very successful right from the start, uh, in part because of his marriage to a Blackfeet woman named Koth Kokona, whom he wed around 1844 at Fort Mackenzie, This is a sketch, I think Ken you might have helped supply me with this particular sketch, um, done by Carl Bodmer during his trip upriver with Prince Maximilian of Weed in the early 1830s. So this is where Clark and Cothc were most likely married around 1844. Now, their relationship might seem a little bit strange to us today when you consider the vast differences between them in terms of language and race, uh, culture, custom, and so on. But in fact, it was very typical of the time and the place, primarily for economic reasons, and I'll explain that. An Indian man would marry his daughter to a white fur trader because uh, he would then get access to his son's uh, or son-in-law's um, trading goods, so iron implements, you know, kettles, tools, knives, axes, guns, ammunition, alcohol, and so on, both for immediate personal consumption, these are very useful products, but also for distribution throughout his band or his tribe, which would be um, a form of patronage and allow him to perhaps get a position of, uh, of power or influence um, among his people and sort of the same was true for the son, but I guess sort of in reverse, or for the white man in reverse, he would marry an Indian woman because he would then get access to the very best products, animal products, that were supplied not only by his father-in-law, but also by all of his wife's uh, male relatives. But I should add that the marriage between Malcolm and Cothcacona was built on love, too. I don't want to romanticize this over much, but I do want to say that theirs was clearly a match that was built on more than economic reasons. They stayed together for 25 years. They had four children of mixed ancestry. Most uh, traders left their so-called country wives, um, and their children behind after the fur trade played out and would go back to the eastern United States. I have two young children um, and, uh, and a wife, and the idea of sort of saying goodbye to them uh, and heading off sort of abandoning them forever uh, is, is rather amazing. That This was actually not all that uncommon. This is certainly true for one of the most famous traders up here, James Kipp, uh, Joe Kipp's father, a name that I'm sure you all know. He had a family down in Missouri, and he basically abandoned uh, Earth Woman, his Mandan wife, and his children um, when he went back to. Missouri in the 1850s, I'm not sure exactly, uh, the timeline for James Kipp. Families like the Clarks became hugely important on the upper Missouri because their kids served as brokers between the white world of their fathers and the native world of their mothers. Now Malcolm Clark retired from the fur trade in the early 1860s and he settled with his family on this ranch in the Prickly Pear Valley at this pass in the mountains that, again, you all know I'm sure very well, about 25 miles north of Helena. Now, as Malcolm settled comfortably into middle age, he was 47 when he made this move, uh, Montana was roiled by conflict. And the cause was a massive influx of white settlers into Montana territory during the early 1860s. And somebody who I spoke with um, up on the reservation, a guy named Daryl Kipp, who I'm sure a number of you know, um, who uh, passed away within the last couple of years, he used a very, for me, very wonderful, rich visual metaphor. He described this as like water over a rock when you think about sort of the influx of, um, of, of whites coming into Montana. Now there were a couple of reasons for this. One of them was because uh, young men who were trying to escape the turmoil of the Civil War happening back east. But especially there was a series of gold strikes in Montana in the early 1860s that lured a lot of young men, especially towards, um, uh, to Montana. Now, these newcomers, a lot of whom came from the Upper South, were not inclined towards the relative racial accommodation of the fur trade. Again, I don't want to romanticize this and say there was perfect racial harmony up here, but I do want to say that because there were not a lot of white people in Montana at this time, um, those who were here had kind of acculturated themselves to the Indian social mores. And uh, there, was rel- there was sort of, it was sort of um, uh, whatever I'm looking for, sort of, uh, Relative, relative period of racial accommodation. I guess that's the best way that I can say it. But the newcomers did not necessarily carry these same ideas with them. So many long-time residents who had mixed families left the area. Some of them went to Canada, where they could find home in the Métis communities north of the border. Um, but Clark stayed here in Montana. And uh, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly why that was. And uh, had a handful of answers that I put forward in the book. I think one of them uh, is that uh, I think Clark had a fair amount of social prestige. Although he did not graduate from West Point, apparently he never failed to tell people that he'd attended West Point. <laughs> <laughs> um, he had seniority, he'd been here for a very long time. And I think he also thought that might insulate him against some of the uh, prejudices of the newcomers. I think the most important thing is he didn't want to start over. In the late 1850s, he took his family to Minneapolis where he had a sister, and he was there for maybe six months, maybe less, before it was clear that this was the place where he had grown up, at, at Fort Snelling, in this area. And he was clearly, this was, this was too settled for him. Uh, and he immediately came back to Montana. I think that it was very clear. He did not want to start over someplace in the East or in Canada or anywhere else. He wanted to stay in the place that had become home for him. Now, tensions between whites and the Blackfeet began to swirl during the 1860s. And the issue was often horse theft, which I should also explain for just a moment. So horses are incredibly important on sort of throughout, you know, Plains Indian culture because horses are great for hunting buffalo, they're great for transporting people and goods, great distances across the plains. But they were also, because of their importance, they became another form of social currency. So the, the bigger a man's horse herd, the more social prestige he had. And so it was that Indian groups would raid one from the other. This is also, these horse raids were a great way for a young man uh, to win um, sort of some prestige and some accolades uh, so on the path to becoming a man. So this is an accepted feature of life for Indian people uh, on, the, uh, on the northern plains, throughout the plains, in that, for that matter. But whites who arrived here did not understand this, and this drove them absolutely crazy. And there was one such incident in 1865 that touched off the so-called Pegan War. Uh, Indians stole 40 horses from whites at Fort Benton. Whites retaliated by killing four peaceful Indians, and the Indians in, then tr- in, in turn then wiped out a 10-man woodcutting party a few weeks later, just north of Fort Benton. And so this inaugurated a period of guerrilla war that lasted for the rest of the decade. White settlers were killed on ranches or in open country. Indians were preyed upon when they visited Fort Benton or other settlements. And it was just that scenario in August 1869 that predated Malcolm Clark's murder. Two Peacons had visited Fort Benton, one of whom was the brother of a prominent chief named Mountain Chief. Uh, They were apprehended, uh, they were murdered, and then their bodies were dumped off the levee into the Missouri River. And so Owlchild, to go back to the very beginning of my presentation, he used Indian rage over this event as cover for his murder of Malcolm Clark, figuring that the Indians, that his Indian sort of um, uh, companions would be so upset, the Blackfeet Nation would be so upset by what had happened to Mountain Chief's brother that they would either overlook or forgive or understand his murder of Malcolm Clark. So all this was a family matter. It spilled over into this much larger conflict that was roiling Montana at the time. Now, as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, Clark's murder was an explosive event, and whites really did fear for their safety. They were hysterical, one might say. And so they urged retaliation against the Pegans, but army commanders in the district of Montana were cautious, and this is partly uh, because they were mindful of the public outcry among humanitarians in the East after the battle, or really more like the massacre on the Washita in November 1868. Let me ask, um, how many of you know about the Washita? Okay, well this is, this is, again, I should not be surprised with a smart Montana audience, but usually folks, Washita, along with the Marias, I think are two almost sort of forgotten or overlooked episodes in the history of the Indian Wars between 1864 and 1890. They sort of get swallowed up by the notoriety of Sand Creek in 1864 in Colorado and Wounded Knee in 1890 in South Dakota. But in November 1868, uh, General George Armstrong Custer and the 7th Cavalry killed about 100 Cheyenne and Arapahoes who were camped in western Oklahoma. And these were some of these people, including Black Kettle, um, were folks who had survived the murderous work of the Colorado militia at Sand Creek in 1864. Um, this was very, all part of Philip Sheridan's, General Philip Sheridan's strategy. Uh, but what really upset uh, humanitarians in the East was not so much the, the numbers of dead Indians, although that was very that was very worrisome, um, but especially Custer's uh, tactically sound but morally repugnant um, scorched earth policy. He burned all the Indians' food and he killed all their horses uh, at the beginning of a very cold winter. And so a lot of the folks who were then turned out onto the plains died from exposure or starvation. So, because they'd gotten a lot of heat from this, in papers in the East, Sheridan, Sherman, and others wanted to have a more deliberate strategy in, in Montana in this question um, with the Pegans. So they attempted to negotiate with various leaders for the surrender of Al Child and his band. Heavy Runner, who was a noted peace chief, was especially worried, and so he asked for a note of safe passage uh, when he met with General Alfred Sully on January 1st, 1870. Um, another question that I think I know the answer to, how many of you have read Fool's Crow? a lot of you. For those who haven't, you need to do that, and you need to go up to see Fort Union. You can take the book with you as you go to Fort Union. So this is a fictional treatment um, of historical events. Uh, and it's just an absolutely wonderful book. I think this is the best tool for teaching undergraduates um, about what the experience of native peoples looked like in the 1860s and 1870s from Indian eyes. And there's a wonderful scene in which um, James Welch, the author, part Blackfeet, sort of recreates what this encounter with Alfred Sully might have looked like for Heavy Runner on New Year's Day, 1870. So he asks for a note of safe passage, attesting to the fact that he is a friend to whites and means no harm. Um, but even as these negotiations were taking place that fall and winter, the machinery of the war was turning. And so when the Blackfeet failed to meet the mid-January deadline that Sully had set, General Phil Sheridan sends out his protege, Major Eugene M. Baker, Uh, from Fort Shaw with the 2nd U.S. Cavalry ordered to quote, strike them hard. This is Baker's class photo from West Point from 1859. And he had become Sheridan's protege, sort of most favored um, uh, commanding officer when he raided up and down the Sheridan, uh, the Sheridan, the Shenandoah in 1864. Now. This is a brutal march for, uh, for Baker and for 400 men, uh, 300 cavalrymen, and then 100 so-called concerned citizens, folks who wanted to come and, uh, and chastise the Pegans uh, for their depredations, and this is in the language of the day. So they began on January 19th, splashing across the Sun River and heading north. Um, but it was a really brutal march for a couple of reasons. One, this was the coldest winter weather that had really ever been recorded in Montana, with sort of temperature readings of 30 degrees below zero. There had been heavy snowfall. But the thing that made it particularly excruciating for the troops was uh, that Baker required his men to march during the night and to hole up during the day with no campfires because he did not want Uh, whiskey traders um, to get word of the troopers movements because the Indians were some of the traders best customers and Baker worried that they might alert the Indians to what was coming. But on the morning of the fourth day uh, they discovered a camp at the Big Bend in the Marias River and deployed in a skirmish line overhead. Now as the sun hit the teepees that morning, the scout Joe Kipp, who is of mixed Indian white ancestry, although uh, his Indian ancestry was Mandan and not Blackfeet, he noted that the markings on the central teepee were heavy runners, precisely the camp that he ordered. He and Baker and others have been ordered to avoid. He goes to tell Baker this, but no matter, because Baker orders Kip silenced upon penalty of death, and he commands his men to attack. And even with every fourth man a horseholder, there were still four, uh, 300 rifles that were and carbines that were trained on this sleeping village below, and so they open up uh, with an enormous 50 caliber charge that could bring down heavy game. And they shot at bindings on the lodge poles as well as the teepees themselves so that these lodges would then collapse on the fires inside, which either incinerated uh, or asphyxiated the people um, who were uh, who were inside those, those teepees. And then Baker ordered his men to charge into the camp. Now present that day were Horace Clark, who was 21 and who had made this miraculous recovery, and his 19-year-old brother Nathan. And they had come to avenge their father. And so they just participated in the killing of their own blood relatives, which is one of the real tragedies of the event. But this is not unusual, sadly, for these Indian massacres of the mid to late 19th century. When the shooting stopped, at least 173 Indians were dead, although Joe Kipp claimed that he counted 217 bodies, and that is the calculation that the Pegans observe and mostly women and children and the elderly because most of the able-bodied young men were off uh, hunting buffalo trying to provision the camp. Even worse, the people in the camp were suffering from smallpox, uh, which is one of the reasons why they had sort of removed to this rather remote location. They didn't want to infect anybody else. So in short, they were utterly defenseless with their warriors away from the camp and with most of the people who were inside, uh, or many of them at least, sick with the so-called white scabs disease. The U.S. casualties that day were uh, one trooper dead and one wounded when he was pitched from his horse when it stepped into a badger hole and he broke his clavicle. Now, I was amazed when I did research on this book that the Baker Massacre, the Marias Massacre, the Bear River Massacre, as the Indians know it, um, is comparatively unknown today. I would argue that it certainly belonged in the conversation with the episodes at Sand Creek and Wounded Knee. It aroused momentary storms of protest in the East, uh, and it affected U.S. Indian policy. For one thing, there was a bill before Congress in the spring of 1870 to transfer Indian affairs from uh, from the Interior Department back to the War Department, where it had resided from the founding of the Republic until 1849 the military men wanted to get control of Indian affairs again. But when news of this broke, the outcry was so great that it forever ended that, uh, the debate over that issue. And so Indian affairs remained in the Department of the Interior. It also ended the practice of appointing army officials like Alfred Sully to civilian positions on reservations. But otherwise, it slipped into obscurity, if not for the Blackfeet, um, who remember it to this day, of course, and make a uh, trip down every uh, January 23rd um, and uh, to conduct a healing and remembrance ceremony. And you could, I'm not sure if this is actually on that, they make other trips down there as well. It Doesn't look like this is the right time of the year, although maybe in January there is no snow, but they're here in, a, um, uh, in sort of a healing circle. And these are the bluffs right here. Uh, where the troopers were arrayed on that morning, and this is the Big Bend and the Mariah south of Shelby. I imagine some of you have probably been there. It's on uh, BLM land, and I think, I think, this is Daryl Kipp right down here. I imagine some of you knew him. Um, <laughs> so the massacre ended Blackfoot resistance to white encroachment pretty much overnight, and of course it had lasted for nearly 70 years from the, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, what am I? The 1806 encounter between Lewis and Clark, I'm blanking on this, a two medicine fight, thank you. Um, From 1806 until 1870, but the curtain came down pretty promptly um, because the Indians knew that if the US Army would wipe out a smallpox camp, unwitting though that might have been, that they were capable of anything. But in the aftermath of this, of this ending of Indian resistance, uh, there was pretty harsh segregation between Indians and whites. But that also extended to peoples of mixed ancestry, who had before enjoyed relatively, you know, enjoyed real social prominence on the upper Missouri. And so they were then known, had been known before, but especially thereafter, um, in the rather cruel terminology of the day as half-breeds, sometimes shortened to just breed. Uh, And even worse epithets like this one, quote, sons of a degenerate ancestry, as one Bureau of Indian Affairs official who had been sent out to administer their reservation. He was supposed to help, and this is what he called the people who were under his charge. Well, this all played out in pretty complex fashion for the Clarks. Although Horace nursed a deep antipathy towards the Pegans because of his father's murder, he basically became one of them later in life. He married a full-blooded Indian woman named Margaret Firstkill, uh, and he lived on the edge of the reservation. This is a photo of Horace from about 1915. Um, And you'll see he's got a big, thick mustache here, and I suspect that's probably the style of the day, but I also wonder if that might have been to conceal the entry wound from the bullet. Horace even served in tribal government positions in the early 20th century, and he was known to advocate for the interests of full-blooded people. The government wanted to deal almost exclusively with peoples of mixed ancestry, believing that full-blooded Indians were not capable of managing their own affairs, so Horace took on that role. Still, he never really expressed remorse for his role in the slaughter, although he did acknowledge that it was the wrong camp, and that Baker, this has long been rumored, but Horace confirmed that Baker was drunk at the time of the attack. Um, Baker died uh, a rather premature death from diseases that are almost certainly related to alcoholism. Um, But what Horace wrote was that uh, the men during this march, quote, kept their spirits up by taking spirits down. In later years, he sold a portion of his allotment to the Great Northern Railway, which then built the Glacier Park Lodge, which is still, of course, in operation today. I bet a bunch of you have been there, Uh, and it's built on um, a piece of the Clark allotment, which I think is absolutely fascinating, and it is another reminder of the ways in which the Clark family is inscribed into the landscape of northern Montana. I imagine many of you have been to Glacier Park, into the park, There's Mount Helen. uh, There's uh, Helen Lake. There's Lake Isabel. There's Dawson Pass. um, For Tom Dawson, who married Horace and Helen's sister, Isabel, um, there are other places that I know you all know. Um, So they're really written right into the landscape of northern Montana, and I found this fascinating when I was doing research for the book. Now, Horace's Older sister Helen had a more arduous path, and I should stop for just a moment and say that Helen uh, was inducted into the Gallery of Outstanding Montanans today uh, and joins her her nephew, John Clark, who was inducted in 2003, are the only two family members of the 39 or 40 people in this Montana Hall of Fame, effectively, who are related, and I think it gives you a sense of just how important the Clarks are to the history of Montana. But Helen had a more arduous path. She was born in 1848 and was in her early 20s at the time of her father's murder, and she witnessed the event firsthand right there on the porch. And she also probably saved her brother's life by packing his wound with raw tobacco um, so he didn't bleed to death. Shortly after his father's murder, she left for New York City uh, in a brief but acclaimed stage career, which is unusual, but not totally out of the blue because she had had uh, kind of a classic Uh, education at Catholic institutions in Minneapolis and in Cincinnati where her father had sent her east for schooling. Something else that Malcolm Clark did that a lot of fur traders did not, either because they didn't have the means or the inclination, but he sent his children uh, to schools in the east to be educated. And Helen's also a natural on the stage. Uh, as I said this morning, um, as one of, her, uh, one of her contemporaries described her, she was quote, five feet and 10 inches of magnificent womanhood. That's probably my favorite direct quotation in the book. And she had this deep, sonorous voice. Uh, she also was prematurely gray, um, and she had this sort of streak of black that ran through her hair. She's a very arresting woman. She is described that way consistently. Even by, uh, by Thomas Marr made a point of describing her as a, a singularly prepossessing young woman when he visited the Clark Ranch, I believe, in 1865. She returned to Montana from New York in 1875 and uh, was pulled into the world of Wilbur Fisk Sanders, who became her patron and surrogate father. Wilbur Fisk Sanders had been a good friend of Malcolm Clark's, I believe was one of the founders of the Historical Society, and um, was still a good friend and kept an eye out for Helen, and with her help, Um, She uh, got a position teaching school, which she did for seven years, until 1882 when, with Sanders' help, she became the first woman elected to office in the history of Montana Territory when she became the superintendent of schools for Lewis and Clark County. She served that position for the rest of the decade until taking on the most unusual job of all uh, in her career, which is serving as an allotment agent in Indian Territory, in Oklahoma, breaking up the Oto, Ponca, Tonkawa, Missouri. Reservations. Um, it's worth pausing for just a moment to tell you that the government, I imagine many of you know this, but the government in 1887 passed the Dawes Severalty Act, which was intended to uh, get Indian to break up, the pu- the, to pulverize the tribal mass, as Theodore Roosevelt described it some years later, to take these communally held Indian lands, to break them up to settle Indians on individual plots of land to teach them the values of, in theory and self-sufficiency and private property. Um, and also, of course, much more um, uh, in sinister fashion, selling off all the excess land on the reservation after having settled the Indians on it. One historian has described this as making Indians into, quote, brown white people. That was the idea. And so Helen is sent down to Indian Territory to do this, which is fascinating because I know of only one other woman who had such a job, and her name was Alice Fletcher. And she allotted the Nez Perce Reservation in Idaho in the 1880s, but she was from an elite Eastern family. She worked at the Peabody Museum at Harvard, held a graduate degree, I believe, in anthropology. And there's Helen Clark from Montana, who is of mixed ancestry. I know of nobody of Indian or mixed ancestry who has a job anything like this in the Indian service. There are folks who have other positions, um, but none with this kind of responsibility. And in fact, as I found out in doing some research, it was precisely because of Helen's ancestry that she sent there. The Commissioner of Indian Affairs, T.J. Walsh, knowing of the Clark family because, again, their fame did sort of precede them. Knowing that these particular groups—the Poncas, the Pankas, the Oto's, uh, the, the Tonkawas, and others—were particularly resistant to the process of Um, uh, of uh, of being settled, of allotment, Um, that he thought that if he sent um, an Indian person down there that he might be able to convince them to take those allotments. I'm not sure that helped, Um, it might not have hurt, but what did hurt was her gender, because I found in the National Archives in Washington several complaints from Indians in Oklahoma saying you know, how the government could send a woman to do a man's work. But she did it very well, and she spent the rest of the decade there, And her reports from the field are rather amazing. And this is Helen here greeting uh, some Indians. I think they might be Ponca's, I'm not certain. But this is how she lived in the field, uh, under canvas tent for months at a time. Uh, And you'll see in here, she had a real elegance that she took with her. Um, She had a bed here, she had a writing desk always, lots of books. And um, you know, play settings, or a couple of pictures in the book that show you know China and tea sets, and you know, and, and linen tablecloths. She was a very elegant woman, so she was not going to let the rather meager surroundings of northern Oklahoma get her down. And I really, I, I admire that she had a person of real refinement, even in very challenging circumstances. She returns uh, from, um, from Oklahoma in the 1890s, uh, but when she does, she comes back to Montana, but she bypasses Helena entirely, which is a little bit interesting, or quite interesting, because this is where she had spent most of her adult life, this is where the Sanders family lived, and she's sort of orbited them like a satellite during um, most of her, uh, of her adult life when she was in, in Helena. But she skips Helena entirely and goes up to East Glacier Park, or Midvale, I guess. Um, why? Well, she denies it. She takes to the newspapers to deny it, but there were whispers that she felt ostracized by uh, the sort of society elite in Helena because of her mother's blood. She said no, that she was equally proud of her mother and her father. But if there was some ambivalence about this or some discomfort, this might also explain her failure to marry, and this is an perhaps an apocryphal story, but it's one that you see often enough that I think it might have some truth to it, that she she never married, she supposedly said, because she did not believe that a white man would treat her as an equal, um, and she believed that marrying an Indian man was beneath her, but she said nothing about the possibility of marrying a man of mixed ancestry. She did have one very torrid, um, I'm sure she had more than one, um, (laughs) which is not at all to impugn Helen, uh, but I'm sure she had at least one rather torrid romance for the man named Henry in San Francisco, because there was this letter, this six page letter, have you seen this letter, it's just extraordinary, um, where he calls her by her Indian name, Peopatawaka, which means the bird that comes home, or the double back woman, I've heard it that way, who comes back. Um, So I know she had a romantic life, but she never married and she never had children. In any event, she comes back to Montana and she takes her own allotment and she lives out her days with her brother until 1923 and has sort of a rustic literary salon uh, in the home that she and Horace shared, as Dana was telling me, just stuffed with books um, because she was quite a reader and folks would come and see her uh, when they were um, uh, coming to Glacier Park in the uh, the 19-teens and early 1920s. I love this. Um, so you'll see here, uh, s- uh, her headstone is um, is very touching. Helen Piopatawaka Clark. The date is wrong, 1848, um, but it says at the bottom here, a pioneer. Now this is a word that Western historians get a little bit touchy about because it's cliched or overused. Well I think that if ever it applied, it applies here because Helen had all of these firsts, whether a superintendent of schools breaking up um, uh, Indian reservations in Oklahoma, starring on Broadway and in overseas capitals in Europe as well on the stage. But her story also shows the fracturing between white and native worlds during the late 19th and early 20th centuries as there's increasingly disparate. So let me finish with the story of John Clark, who was Horace's son and Helen's nephew and, and Malcolm Clark's grandson, although he never knew his grandfather. John was born in 1881 and he was rendered deaf and mute at the age of two by a scarlet fever epidemic that killed off several of his infant brothers. Now there were no accommodations for the disabled in reservation schools or off-reservation Indian schools, so he was educated instead at deaf institutions in North Dakota, Montana, and Wisconsin before he came back to Montana for good around 1910 and developed a career as an artist. He was mostly self-taught. I imagine, I hope, that many of you took in um, some of his creations outside, which are just extraordinary. Don't miss Blackfeet Encampment as you're exiting the museum today. Look up on, on the wall on the left-hand side. If I don't tell you this now, I'll forget to do so. I think it's a one-ton block of, co- uh, of cottonwood that he, that he sculpted on site here at the Historical Society in the 1950s, just extraordinary. But he had to start somewhere. <laughs> Before he carved that, he learned by um, uh, playing with, uh, making figures that he created from mud that were dug from the banks of the Missouri River. And he was fascinated from an early age by wildlife. I've got lots of pictures that, uh, that Joyce Clark Turvey very generously let me use. This is one of my favorites. This is Clark with his twin passions, um, art and hunting. So he's got uh, this painting of the um, the Two Medicine Valley uh, that I believe may be in the hill collection in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the hills of the, of the Great Northern Railway. A couple of bears in various stages of completion, and here he's got his hunting rifle, he was a great hunter and fisherman. And you'll see outside, um, he illustrated so many letters, like Charlie Russell, um, with uh, little scenes, just little bitty sketches of, um, uh, of hunting and fishing. It just, just, it was clearly what obsessed him. Those were his passions. So as I said, he returned to Montana around 1910 after having charged carved church altars in Milwaukee as sort of a vocation for several years, and he opened a studio in East Glacier Park right on the edge of the Blackfeet Reservation. And this gave him easy access to wealthy Eastern tourists who were coming to visit Glacier Park, which had opened in 1910. And you'll see how perfectly he was situated. So here is East Glacier Park, and his studio was right here in the shadow um, of the train line, the Great Northern Railway coming from Minneapolis, maybe even as far as Chicago, and he would see these passengers who were disembarking, uh, and he would be able to sell them some artwork. One early visitor to his studio described it as a scene from the animal kingdom because of so many different carvings and different stages of completion. He was probably most famous for his work on on mountain goats, but there's a buffalo here, Uh, He's working on Indian and horseback here, um, Indian head here. There's a really wonderful range of stuff that's outside, that's things that I didn't even know that John carved uh, that are outside on display this evening. His career caught fire in the late 19-teens, in part perhaps because of his friendship with Charlie Russell, of course up here needs no introduction. Uh, John's patrons in this period included President Warren G. Harding, who supposedly had a Clark carving of an eagle in the White House on display, and also John D. Rockefeller Jr., who uh, the Rockefellers, um, or or Junior, uh, would come out with his family in the late teens and early 20s uh, to visit some of the new national parks, bring their own private rail car, which cost something like $500,000 to operate then. I have no idea, several million dollars now. And so Junior came out one summer in 1924 and apparently went back east with a whole hall of Clark carvings, including perhaps, I think, a three-foot grizzly bear. His artwork won major awards and it showed in the East Coast and Europe and it became, uh, a mountain goat, uh, became the official, if uncredited, symbol of the Great Northern Railway. Um, Rocky, the the mascot um, that you see emblazoned on all the cars of uh, of the Great Northern, based on a John Clark carving. He was known on the reservation as Kutepui, which in Blackfeet means the man who talks not, or doesn't talk, for obvious reasons. Much of the success at the time was attributed to his wife, a white woman named Mamie, whom he married in 1918. And I think some of this is because of the rather racist assumptions of the day about what a deaf Native artist could accomplish. Consider this from a 1927 story. Quote, perhaps he might have given up the struggle had not destiny decreed that a white girl should love him, should become his wife, and appreciate his ability. And Mamie never said such things. She certainly helped handle John's business affairs, but John was basically self-taught, and she never said otherwise. And I think they had a really loving relationship. I love this picture of the two of them. Um, I think there's probably a particularly intense relationship. Mamie was uh, a divorcee. Um, they married late. John was probably in his late 40s, about the time they got married. And what's so interesting about their relationship is, even at this time in the, early te- in the teens and 20s, the relationship is almost always reversed. It's a white man marrying an Indian woman. This is almost never the case. This is a really unusual relationship for that time. And yet it endured until Mamie died, I think, in the late 1940s. But for all this success, in his mid-career, John reoriented uh, his carving from exclusively, or mostly, wildlife towards explicitly native themes. Uh, I think there are a variety of possible reasons that I explore in the book about why this might be. I think some of the pieces certainly were commissions, uh, like the one that he did here uh, on site um, for uh, for the historical society. So those subjects were dictated by patrons. I think it's possible that he wanted to cement his legacy as a master sculptor with even more enduring themes and wildlife, of which he was an acknowledged master. But I would say also that this shift was in part, maybe in large part, because of an awakening, a keen awakening to his own native identity. And you see this most powerfully in his dedication to training other sculptors on the reservation. And I met some of them in Montana when I was researching this book, including a man named Marvin Weatherwax, so I imagine some of you might know. And Marvin showed me how John showed him when he was a boy how to um, measure proportion by using the joints on his finger and to sort of then adapt that to his carving. Um, one slide that, I've got that i 've got that I really like a lot. this is uh, John Clark with a bust of two guns white calf. It was not any Indian. The point is that John did not carve just any Indian on the reservation. He carved uh, two guns. He was probably the most famous Indian of his day. His obituary ran in Time magazine. Some say that he was this is hotly debated um, sort of the, uh, the, the model for the, um, for the Indian head on the obverse of the buffalo nickel. Uh, again, there are some who would say that 's absolutely not true but The thing about about two guns that's so interesting, so important for John's interest in him, is that he was lionized by traditionalists on the reservation because of his attention to the old ways. He spoke Blackfoot. Uh, He attended Indian Days, the tribe's annual ceremonies in July. He never failed to harangue the government um, for its shady dealings in 1895 that pried the Ceded Strip um, away from the Blackfeet and became, in many ways, the basis for Glacier National Park. maybe most telling were a series of plaster molds that uh, that John did with the anthropologist John C. Ewers in the 1940s. Ewers invited Clark to come down um, and to develop these polychrome molds uh, that were meant to show how uh, women in the old days, in the Buffalo days, tanned bison hides. And apparently Clark just very sort of laboriously sort of recreated these models to preserve that cultural heritage. All right, so what to do with all of this? What is the gist of the Clark story, especially those later generations of mixed blood people who were the chief source of my initial interest? Well, in the end, uh, I came to see John as a, quote, 150% man. Does anybody know that term? Uh, are there any cultural anthropologists out there? OK, good. You'll learn something tonight. Excellent. Um, <laughs> this is a concept that was introduced by a Stanford cultural anthropologist in the 1960s named Malcolm McPhee, who spent a decade among the Blackfeet doing field research in the 1950s and in the 1960s. So when he was doing field work, McPhee, uh, he realized that the overwhelming majority of folks on the reservation were of mixed ancestry. This was in stark contrast to the early 20th century, when almost all the folks on the reservation, or certainly many of them, uh, were were full-blooded. And so McPhee realized given the fact that most of these folks were of mixed ancestry, was that if, by his own admittedly crude metric, if an individual registered in terms of their behavior and their outlook as opposed necessarily to their biology, if such an individual registered to say 75% Indian, that that person would not be limited to just 25% whiteness. Or in other words, one could be powerfully acculturated to both native and white ways simultaneously. The process was not a zero sum calculation. This was true for Horace, uh, it would have been true for Helen as well had Malcolm McPhee not been bound by the gender conventions of the day. And it certainly was true for John Clark, who I imagine that Malcolm McPhee must have met. John would have been a very old man at the time that McPhee was doing his field research. But he was certainly an active presence. John took his carving tools with him into the hospital in November 1970. He's carving until the day he died. And I am sure that he is somebody who Malcolm McPhee might have met on the reservation. Now, some might say this is not a piercing revelation, but it's one that's been largely ignored ever since by scholars, too, who often fall victim to these same binary racial categories. You're either white or Indian, or think about the case of President Barack Obama. He certainly is our country's first African-American president, um, and he has an African father, but he also has a white mother, and yet we try to put him in a single category. And ironically, this very same essentializing is now seen on the reservation today. This is what one resident, whom I interviewed, called, quote, bloodism. And the issue is this, if in the early 20th century having too much Indian blood was a problem, certainly as far as the government was concerned, now the question on the reservation is about not having enough, not being sufficiently Indian. I think there are a couple of reasons for this. One of them is that there's more than merely identity at stake because in 2006, Blackfeet opened a casino, and fracking has opened up the possibility for energy exploitation on the reservation. And so that I, with the emergence of this bloodism, questions about blood quantum, uh, and so on, I would say that peoples of mixed ancestry are still struggling to find their place in Browning, on the Blackfeet reservation, uh, and throughout Indian country more broadly. Thank you.